Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to what you might turn to John's Gospel, the first chapter, and back up a little bit. But we are in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, our text this morning will be verses 50 through 53. There's not a great deal given to us in the Scriptures regarding Jesus' ascension, which is our focus this morning. Of the four Gospels, only Luke gives us any information at all. So it's not mentioned in Matthew or Mark or John specifically. And then the beginning of the book of Acts, which we have just read, where which is Luke's second work. There we see more of the details. So what we're looking at today is somewhat of a summary account. And so we will be referencing at points Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We are 40 days beyond Jesus' resurrection. There have been multiple appearances that Jesus has made, and, and Paul makes mention of those in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Acts chapter 1, verse 3. There Luke says in introducing that work that Jesus has appeared among them by many convincing proofs. So there was to be no question in their mind whether or not Jesus has really returned from the grave, whether or not it was really him. Uh, lest one would be tempted to think, oh, there were a few days of excitement and wishful thinking that overtook these, these disciples of Jesus. He remained with them for 40 days, appearing to them, different groups, and on one occasion a group of up to 500 so there would be no question in their mind that, in fact, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So when we think about the ascension. How much do we really think about that? Uh, we think about the gospel message of, and we would certainly include the life and the, the suffering and the death and the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't spend a great deal of time thinking about Jesus' ascension. So when we are compelled to, uh, because we are going section by section through a book and we have to come through verses 50 through 53 and think about specifically the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we have here just simply a mere record of events of his departure? Or is there, in fact, benefit for us as the people of God? I think we know the answer to that question. I hope we do. I hope we realize that there is more here than just something to read and to go on to something of, that's more exciting. That's something that we may look at and say, oh, I can think of something much more apropos for where I am in my Christian experience, something more applicable for where I am in my Christian walk than thinking about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps that's so, but nevertheless... For today, we're going to deal with it. We're going to, to look at this text and, tr I trust, find that there is, in fact, benefit for the people of God in considering the events of Jesus' ascension into heaven. Begin reading with me in Luke chapter 24, verses 50 and following. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them while he was blessing them. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. 
and were continually in the temple praising God. Perhaps one of the more surprising elements of this text, at least in my thinking as as I read through and gave thought to it, is the expression here in describing the disciples, and it says in verse 52, that they, after worshiping Him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That, to me, is the most surprising element in this text. That there is great joy in the hearts of Jesus' disciples. After all, they had experienced great sorrow at His departure from them by death. And with His resurrection, with His post-resurrection appearances, you can certainly expect that early on that there was perhaps a renewal of this hope that the disciples had, had vanquished. A hope of, of God's kingdom being established as they had imagined. Because, after all, He is now back. And He is the Messiah. So now He can establish that kingdom as we had hoped before and had that hope dashed when He was crucified. And plus, we would expect that there would be simply the natural desire for Him to remain with them. After all, He is the Lord. He is Jesus. He has died the way that all other people leave the earth and He's returned. Why can we not expect that He'll just stay with us rather than depart? So with that in mind, it is something, I think, of, a, of an irony that this is described as a joyous occasion to the disciples. Joy that I believe is rightfully passed on to the church, to God's people throughout the ages, that as we consider this joyful parting of Jesus departing from His disciples there, that we can look at this and also find that there is joy for the church of God today in Christ's ascension. And so that we look at this and we consider this event with more than just the, yeah, that's pretty neat, but to, you know, but to look at this, you know, you know, there is joy for us in the truths that are revealed to us in this event. And that's what I want us to be focused upon today in this, the ascension of Jesus, the joys that we have. So what are the joys of Jesus' ascension? What is it that makes Jesus' ascension into heaven a joyous event for the disciples here and likewise for us as the people of God today. Well, first of all, we see that this event is comprehended by His followers. There's a reason for great joy simply in the fact that they understand what's going on here. The disciples certainly understood Jesus' ascension more readily than they understood some events that had taken place before this. I mean, after all, there is the clarity of the event itself. Jesus leads, it says here, He led them out in verse 50. He's leading them out as far as Bethany. He gives them some instruction and He departs from Him. Just how simple, 
how clear this event is to to them and even to us as we read of what took place here. There are for the disciples no arrest. There are no abuses. There are no crosses. There are no deaths that they've got to comprehend. There is here in the ascension of Christ no mix of divine sovereignty with the evil deeds of men to try to sort it out, which was part of the crucifixion. Divine sovereignty, God's plan being exercised according to the way that He had purposed it from all eternity past, and yet done so with the evil deeds of men. There is no such mixture in this event here. As we come here to the ascension of Christ, we find Jesus walking with His disciples. Coming to a point of His choosing. Jesus willfully departing, ascending into the clouds. And not just another vanishing, even as He has done on some other occasions as He's been with them in His post-resurrection appearances. The times He's been with them and He's just suddenly appeared. The times He's been with them and He's suddenly vanished. Here He ascends into the sky, not just another disappearance. Something they would recognize as bringing an end to the visible fellowship as they have known with Jesus up to this time but also a necessary transition to the age, as Jesus spoke of, the age of the Holy Spirit. So it's a clear action with little in the way of mystery. As far as, what do we have to sort out here? It's simply a pretty clear, clear event. Not only is the clarity of the event, but also the condition of understanding. Remember here, back in verse, back in verse forty-five of this chapter, it says that he he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There's a new condition that the disciples are now experiencing and are walking in, and that is they're understanding things about Jesus. And so, in particular, when it says here that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, that what he's what he's saying there is, that in particular, they understood the scriptures as that. Which which spoke of Jesus. They are seeing Jesus Christ in the Old Testament Scriptures in ways they've never seen Him before. Understanding the Word of God in ways they've never understood it before. Because Jesus, according to verse 45, He has opened their minds to understand that the Scriptures reflect Him. They are about Him. They speak of Him. So now they can understand the events of Jesus' life. Now they can understand even some of the teachings of Jesus that they didn't quite grasp on earlier occasions. Look in John chapter 12. When Jesus is entering Jerusalem and He comes in on the donkey there and they're taking the branches and people are, are saying things that sound profound to say of anyone. <laughs> this messianic entry into the city of Jerusalem. Verse 16, what does John here tell us? In John chapter 12, verse 16, he said, These things his disciples did not understand at the first. They didn't quite get it. 
They were seeing the events transpire in the life of Jesus, but they didn't understand the fullness of what was going on here. But when Jesus was glorified, when's that? After His resurrection. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of Him. And that they had done these things to Him. So they're understanding how the events in the life of Jesus are tied into the Scriptures of the Old Testament. They're understanding the things that Jesus spoke of, which we've looked at time after time again, when He spoke of His, of his arrest, He spoke of being handed over to the Gentiles, He spoke of His death. All these things, they just couldn't get it. But now, their minds are open that they understand the teaching. So they're in this condition of understanding that they have not been in before. The misconceptions that they had regarding God's kingdom have been and are being corrected. Look with me in Acts chapter 1. What was Jesus doing for these 40 days when He was with them? Among those things... Look what he says in verse 3. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and doing what? And speaking of the things concerning what? The kingdom of God. See, they had had this conception about what the kingdom of God was going to be like. They had this misconception of what Jesus was supposed to be doing as the Messiah. What was going to happen as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, establishes Himself upon the throne, establishes Israel as the center point of God's worship. Israel is elevated, the Roman rule is done away with, and the kingdom of God is established through the ethnic Israel. And so Jesus goes about correcting their thinking on that after the resurrection. He teaches them about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is more than an ethnic group being established as the center point of the kingdom, but He speaks about the kingdom of God coming in the hearts of men because men and women are delivered from the bondage of sin. That is the kingdom of God, where God, where Christ rules in the hearts of His people. And so He spends time in these 40 days teaching them, speaking to them of the things concerning the kingdom of God. All these misconceptions they had, all the things they couldn't figure out what was going on because they thought, he's got to do this, and he didn't do it. And this can't happen, and it did happen. That message of the kingdom of God advancing and being explained to them. And they understand it. So this condition of understanding that they they comprehend to a much greater degree of what's going on here. And it's not that we need to assume here that every piece of the puzzle in their minds is in place, that they've got it all put together. The fact of the matter is, the Holy Spirit has not yet come, and I don't think what they've got in mind and what happens is the same thing. My guess is they're assuming something different from what actually transpires when the Spirit of God comes ten days after Jesus' ascension. So it's not as though they have everything squared away. But the struggles of trying to reconcile Jesus' death with the Old Testament messianic expectation, they've grasped that. 
As Jesus said, it was necessary for these things to take place. This was God's redemptive plan. If God was to establish a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, in the hearts of men, then there must be a once and for all dealing with sin. And they've understood that now. So we can believe and assume here that Jesus has prepared His disciples for this occasion. They have more a more clear grasp of His redemptive work, of why He's come, what He's seeking to accomplish, and believing that He has. And so the result of that is, is they come here with Jesus, and Jesus is ascending into heaven. And what does it say? The response is, they said in verse 52, and they, after worshiping Him, After worshiping Jesus, here's the result. There is the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is great joy in their hearts. And there is praise offered unto God there. In verse 53, praising God continually in the temple. Filled with great joy. At Jesus ascending heavenward. His redemptive work, His suffering for the sins of His people, now past. So likewise, for us as the people of God, it's cause for similar response in our hearts. The response of God's people in every age, when we consider the ascension of Christ in heaven, that we should come, first of all, and to offer our worship unto this one. This one, Jesus, is worthy to be worshipped, that He has come as God incarnate. He's not come merely as a messenger of God, one sent forth from God, apart from God, but He comes as the very extension of God Himself. God has come, God incarnate, God our Redeemer, and here returning to His glory. And the great joy in knowing that Jesus' suffering and His death, that they were necessary if there were to be a people redeemed and brought unto God through Christ. There was a temporary state of Jesus' humiliation. Jesus' humiliation from the time of conception and even to the time of His his crucifixion and burial. But it's a temporary state of His humiliation. All within God's own purposes. Securing the salvation of all God's people, all those who believe in Him. Knowing that Jesus returns to heaven, his exaltation. Do you see here in the ascension of Christ a portion of his exaltation, the exaltation that began even even by his being placed in the grave of a wealthy man. Christ being exalted into the heaven, received before God, received by God the Father. So our response, likewise, to be praised to our God as they were found continually doing. Praise to our God for His amazing, His amazing, gracious, and successful plan of redemption. Who would have ever dreamed of such a plan? Who would have ever thought that that man would be redeemed by God giving Himself? Who would have come up with such a plan? None of us would have even thought of it. And if we never thought of it, we would have never dared to ask for it. How arrogant to do such a thing. And yet God's plan, 
God's plan of redemption to send His own Son, God incarnate. What a cause for joy as we consider Jesus in light of His life and in light of His work. And to know that there came a point when He, all of His work here on the earth was finished. It's done. It's done. And He is returning back to His place of glory. There's joy in just the fact, folks, that we can look with some level of understanding. This is a pretty clear-cut event. But what it means, what it means, cause to praise, cause to worship, cause to have great joy in our hearts that God's redemptive work is done. It's finished. All that He's desired to accomplish, He's done it. And so He's returning to His place of glory. Second thing we hear, the cause of joy in this text here, we see this is in the context of blessing. It's in the context of blessing. Luke indicates in verse 51. First of all, last part of verse 52, it says, He lifted up His hands and He blessed them. And then He says, And while He was blessing them. While He was blessing them, He parted from them. I think it's reasonable to assume that His departure... His parting from them was consistent with the act of blessing for them. In other words, you don't have here on the one hand blessing being offered and then leaving as though the blessing has ended. No, it's while He's blessing. In the midst, in the context of the blessing of His disciples, that's when He goes. Safe to assume that a part... Of the blessing as He has given it there, the blessing is continuing. The blessing is continuing even in His parting from them. But is it? You know, am I just reading into something here? Trying to get a point here that fits the sermon? (laughs) Is Jesus' departure a blessing to His disciples? Or is it just part of what they got to endure? Here's my blessing, but I'm going to sneak out while you're not looking. Well, consider the words of Jesus, which we're all familiar with John chapter 16, verse 7, when Jesus has taught His disciples already, it is to your advantage that I go away. That's hard to grasp sometimes, isn't it? When He says, it's to your advantage. It's better for you that I go away. So wait a minute. It's better to be without the physical bodily presence of Jesus than to have been there and walked with Him and lived with Him and, and Jesus just kind of hung around. I mean, He could be nothing. He could still just be here. Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away. And then He goes on to say that it is the sending of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, is dependent upon His departure. What's the significance of that? It's not as though we need to look at it and think, well, it's impossible for some type of a metaphysical thing here for God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to be at the same time. It can't happen. That's not the issue here. But Jesus... It's just simply reminding them of what the Old Testament Scriptures teach. 
when the Old Testament scriptures indicate that the characteristic of the age of the kingdom of God. There's that phrase again, kingdom of God. The characteristic of the of the age of the kingdom of God is the spirit of God. And it's through the Old Testament. Very quickly, look with me in a few Old Testament passages. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to read the entirety of this. A shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. And we know who he's speaking of here. Speaking of Christ. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness of the the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins. And faithfulness the belt about his waist. But what's the qualifying factor here? It is the Spirit of the Lord rest upon him. And then in in Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah 32. Verses 14 and following. Because the yeah, because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken, hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks, until, verse 15, until the Spirit, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. What's the context here? Verse 15. The Spirit is poured out. The Spirit is poured out upon us. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 4. Now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, and formed you from the womb who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. And verse 3 again. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. What's the mark here? Of this, of this coming of the kingdom of God. It's the mark of the, the Spirit of God. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 and following. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from the land, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In verse 27, I will put my spirit... Within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What's the mark there? This coming. This future coming. Which is. As this kingdom of God. What is it? 
It's marked by the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Then Joel chapter 2. It's on page 779 in my Bible. (laughs) You're on your own. (laughs) Joel chapter 2, beginning with verse 28. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. From Mount Zion and Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. That sounds familiar to you? Look to, over in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> that prophecy of Joel about the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 16. Peter makes reference. He says, listen, here it is, folks. Very simply, I don't know how to get more clear than this. This is as clear as I know you can get without just slapping somebody in the face and saying, Do you get this? Verse 6, this is what was spoken. King James first says, this is that. <laughs> this is that. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, which we just read. And what's he talking about? He is talking about the events that they are witnessing before their very eyes at Pentecost. With the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And then he quotes verse 17. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. What's he saying here? He's just very simply saying what Joel prophesied. You're seeing right here. And I'm of the mind that what he quotes there, verses 7 and following, it all is fulfilled at Pentecost. Some of it literally, some of it figuratively. That's what he says. This is that. Now, if you want to break it up and say, well, part of us fulfilled Pentecost, part of us fulfilled in the last days, fine, you can do that, but I don't think you have a warrant for it. I think it's all fulfilled right here. I mean, it's just very simple. This is that. This is what was spoken. And he didn't break it off here. He keeps going. That what Joel has prophesied is the day of the Spirit of God being poured out. So, if the presence, the outpouring of the Spirit characterizes the age of the kingdom of God, and Jesus says to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away, so the Holy Spirit can come, what's he simply saying? The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God, in, in a sense, in one aspect, has already come in Christ. But there is about to be an outpouring of the Spirit of God, even upon you in your day. So that Jesus' departure means great blessing of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is near. 
that God is not just with His people, as Jesus was with His disciples, but God is in His people, in the person of the Holy Spirit, in a way that has been unparalleled throughout redemptive history. So having taught His disciples regarding God's kingdom, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 3, the promise of the Spirit to come, you can believe that there would have been great enthusiasm and excitement found with His disciples saying, these things that have been prophesied, they're, they're upon us here. They're upon us. Cause for joy? Yeah. Cause for great joy. He's leaving, but something great. And can I say it? Something better for us. It's about to take place with the coming of the Spirit and that which characterizes the kingdom of God. God's promised plan is about to unfold beyond all expectation. There is about to be an explosion of the kingdom of God by gospel preaching to Jew and Gentile. There it is. The kingdom of God advancing Throughout the world. So there is great joy here. in Jesus ascension. He blesses his disciples. And the church for all the ages. In the midst of this blessing as he leaves. Here it is. It is a great blessing to them. Even of his departure. Not just his departure. Because of what is coming in his place. So the blessing continues. And that is where we live. Isn't it? We live in that day. We still live in the day that was initiated at Pentecost. The days of the Spirit. Jesus continues to build His church worldwide so that those of every nation and every tongue and every tribe will be gathered before the throne of Christ and worshiping Him. We have, even to this day, brothers and sisters around the world who we could sit by them and not understand a word they say, but our hearts are united with them. Because in Christ, Christ is building His church it's around the world. And God's people, they proclaim Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer to all who would come. And the Spirit of God accompanies that word, doesn't He? The Spirit of God sends forth that word. And he regenerates the hearts of some who hear. And He indwells those who believe. So there is a... Great joy in this, seeing that this comes, this ascension of Christ comes right in the context of blessing. And seeing this is the blessing. This is a part of the blessing. His ascension, His departure, so the Spirit of God will come. And great things coming with that. The advancing of the kingdom of God. And finally we see here, great cause for joy and rejoicing here. Because we see this is a carrying into heaven. Carrying into heaven. There's a lot of mystery. In one sense. In the, in the details. You know, how exactly did this take place? What, what exactly happened? You know, they're, they're looking at Jesus. And all of a sudden he starts rising up. And Acts tells us he was, he was taken, taken into a cloud. And, you know, what happened? We don't, first of all, we don't. We don't need to fall prey to those who say, well, this is the old worldview that heaven is up there and the earth is down here. So he went up into heaven up there. But we know that by flying rockets and all that kind of thing, the heaven is not really up there. So that's not what we're dealing with here. 
It's not a problem here of, of a worldview of, of where heaven is and all that kind of stuff. The details that are given to us in Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11, he was lifted up. Luke 24 tells us he was carried up. He was carried up. There was a force upon him. A cloud received him out of their sight. And it says here he was carried up in Luke's account. He was carried up into heaven. And then in Luke's writing there in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Twice the angels that speak there. Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven. That's where he's gone. And it's not speaking out the skies here. He's speaking out, he says, why do you look up into the sky? But he's been taken up into heaven, the dwelling place of God, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So twice here, the angel used the terminology, heaven. He is ascended in heaven, and he will return back in the same way from heaven. So what here is the significance of this ascent? First of all, it is Jesus' complete vindication. It is a complete vindication of all that Jesus has done. Here He is exalted to the presence of God the Father in heaven. He is received by God Himself. So those who had any form, any matter of criticism against Jesus, they're proven wrong altogether. God receives Him. A complete vindication by God the Father of God the Son. The one who delighted in Him on earth. And He said so, didn't He? said, this is my son in whom I delight. And the one who delighted in him on his earth, he delights and receives him into his eternal presence in heaven. So it's Jesus' complete vindication. Secondly, we see it is the beginning point of Jesus' of Jesus' priestly work. Now, it's not as though there has never been any priestly work prior to this. Jesus has prayed for his, for his church. Jesus interceded. Jesus has worked on behalf of His people. But His high priestly work that the book of Hebrews speaks of, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, refers to Jesus as our great high priest. And Hebrews 7, 24 and following speaks of, of Him holding His priesthood permanently. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, He has taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty. See, it's Christ entering into His eternal priesthood at the right hand of God the Father. In Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen, we read that last week. Stephen is being stoned and he looks up in heaven and he, and he says, I see Jesus. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Again, the right hand is it's, it's human language, it's anthropomorphic language for the place of authority. God doesn't have a hand. But it's the place of absolute authority given to the Son. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. And He appears, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24... He appears in the presence of God for us. Hebrews 9.24 So it's Jesus' priestly work is a significant portion of this ascent. A third part of this, we'll get actually from the book of Acts, is 
is Jesus' eventual return. Which the angel said, He will come in the same way. He will return for His people and to establish His rule over all creation. So He is carried into heaven as a it's a complete vindication. He's received by God the Father. He's carried into heaven to enter into His eternal priestly work on behalf of His people. And He is carried into heaven as a reminder to us as the way that He will one day return. There's a visible picture of what's going to happen one day. Just as you've seen Him go into the heavens, He will return. So that we do believe in a visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ. So our great joy in Jesus is sent to heaven. He is received by God the Father. He is our advocate before God, given all authority in heaven and in earth. And He gives us cause to anticipate His promised return, His reappearance. So let us rejoice in our advocate, in our high priest that is in the heavenlies. And his ascension gives us cause. It gives us cause, does it not, to keep an eye upward. Keep keep an eye turned upward. One day Christ shall return. He shall appear. And those who are His, the dead in Christ, shall first be raised from the dead, and then those who are His will will join and meet Him in the air and can come with Him. He will return. So His ascension, as it was, as it was a visible event here, gives gives us cause to believe He's coming back, just as He has departed. So they are the joys of His ascension for us. Number one, that we simply understand it. It's comprehended. We grasp this thing. You know, it's not shrouded with mystery. It's not shrouded with things that, that are just, we can't grasp. You know, here it is. Jesus Christ wills to go and He, and he does. He goes to the, to, the, to the point of His choosing. And He is received into heaven. But we understand what's implied there. We understand that, that He's completed a work here, the redemptive work here. We understand that. That He's done. That he didn't enter into heaven, failed mission. That he entered into the heaven, mission accomplished. And to know that his ascension is in fact a blessing. His departing, his parting from here physically is a blessing to his people. As he sends the Holy Spirit. And his, the joy of his being received into heaven, fully vindicated. But there is our advocate. There is our high priest. And knowing that he will return just as we, just as he is gone. So there are some joys for us, isn't it? It is a joyful parting. A joyful parting for Christ and his disciples. And likewise, that we can consider, we can see the ascension. There is great joy for us in this event. And let the greatest joy be that we look with the spirit of expectation that one day he will return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we rejoice in this good gift to us that we don't have to wonder what happened. 
very clear. You walked out with your disciples and you were received into heaven. And that we can rest assured that one day you will return. Oh Lord, what joy there is for us in that. Oh Lord, the joy to know that redemption has been accomplished and now is being applied by your Spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with that sense of joy and expectation and with that hope within us that one day Christ shall return. What manner of life ought we to live? Oh, Lord, to live holy and godly lives for Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.